we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? Fall is upon us, and we're back into the normal routines that we're used to, and let one of those normal routines be your health and wellness. Who better to help you with that than Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition? You can reach out to her on Facebook at Rise Menominee, and she'll get you started accomplishing all of your health and wellness goals. Again, that's Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition. Hey friends, I am your host, Matt Kinzera. I'm excited as always to be with you, and I'm excited to begin a conversation today that we have yet to touch on, which is mental health. I can think of no one better to jump into this with than marriage and family therapist and author, Molly LaCroix. My name is Molly LaCroix, and I now joke that People who drink the sparkling water can say my name for the first time ever. People can pronounce my last name. (laughs) And I am um, professionally, I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I got my master's degree at a seminary. So I've always been interested in integrating secular models of psychotherapy with the Bible, with her, you know, using hermeneutics and studying Old and New Testament, studying theology. I love to nerd out on that stuff. And personally, my husband and I celebrated our 40th anniversary last month, and we have two adult children. Our daughter and her husband have two girls, and our son and his wife have a a little boy. So my new favorite thing is being Minnie to those grandchildren. That's my grandma name. (laughs) I love it. Molly, why don't you share a little bit, because your faith is obviously really important to you as well as your profession. So why don't you share a little bit of just about your faith background, maybe what you grew up in, and then maybe even where you are now in that process. Sure. Yeah. The interesting thing is I grew up in, my parents would have identified as Christians, but we didn't go to church. Uh, not even on high holidays. (laughs) So interestingly, we moved all the time and I always found a special friend and that friend usually had some kind of spiritual life in their family. And I was drawn to that. So just began kind of reading things like mere Christianity in high school and ended up uh, going to church regularly for the first time after my husband and I got married he was in the military, he was gone, I was alone. And that really began my journey. And uh, it was for me, very intellectual journey. And yeah, over the years, went to a variety of churches, 
and didn't even realize my my journey of deconstruction from some of the more evangelical type churches that I spent some time in, although never for very long because I teach, I'm a teacher and I'm a leader. So they don't really appreciate that. (laughs) But I didn't even know the word deconstruction really when I was going through that, when I found myself really questioning some of the more traditional evangelical ways of understanding things. Uh, Thankfully, the seminary I attended was very ecumenical. So there were people from all different denominations there. And that made it interesting and safe to explore. And, And then once I got into practice as a therapist, and you just sit with humans day after day and learn from them, that really informed my theology as well. And ultimately, the model of psychotherapy that I use in my work, all the, all the science-based models of psychotherapy are secular. But this particular one, the man that developed it over, I don't know, close to 40 years ago now, ultimately came to see that no matter what had an, an individual had experienced, no matter how horrific their trauma, their life experience, ultimately, as they healed, they always manifested these qualities of, you know, he, he's a good teacher. So he named eight C words, things like compassion and curiosity and creativity that they had no matter what had happened to them, which wasn't typically the psychological understanding of humans. Typically, there was sort of this understanding that you were broken and you needed an external agent for your healing. And what was radical about this understanding was, no, you have these resources that get constrained by what happens to you in life, but they're there. And that was this kind of mind blower for me as I learned that theory of saying, well, yeah, because we're created in God's image. And so the integration really, it it leans into, we have these resources we aren't these abject sinners who have nothing good in us. <laughs> you know, we have these resources no matter what happened to us. And we can draw on those for healing. One of the things I appreciate that you said is that it's when you were sitting with people that your theology formed, which is really backwards from a lot of the, the thinking, at least in church circles and whatnot, where it's you learn from that person standing up in front of you. Before we hopped online here, you had mentioned something that hit pretty close to me. There's this expectation of pastors and I can only speak in. So I grew up Catholic and then went to evangelical churches and kind of universally, at least in those spaces, there's this expectation that the pastor not only does his church roles and spiritual direction and things like that, but there's this expectation that they're also the congregation's therapists. And Mm -hmm. it's not said in those strong of words, And I don't know if it's just because the congregants trust that pastor or they feel like it's free therapy or what it is. But the reality is I've never talked to a pastor or very few pastors, I should say, have I talked to that actually have that sort of training and education in their background. And so you identified when we were talking earlier that not only is there a high chance that that won't be very helpful, there's a, there's a pretty good probability that that will end up creating even more hurt and more trauma than is already there. And a lot of the people that I talk to kind of post evangelical people 
are people that are often reeling from extra trauma that they experienced from church experiences. Absolutely. When, when people, you know, ask me to talk about the book, one of the, you know, what I say is, well, what got me going is why is it that Christians talk so much about love, but often fail to be loving? Because what happens when people are struggling, and I think it is, I mean, ideally, they feel safest going to their trusted pastor with this very vulnerable pain they're in, whether it's in a relationship or they're experiencing some symptoms um, like anxiety or depression or whatever it might be that they're struggling with. They, they do trust that person. And it's this double whammy when, and I think, you know, I like to believe people are well-intentioned. But just as you pointed out, don't have the skill. And so they lean into what they do know. And sadly, in many, many spaces, what they know is comes across as judgment. You know, you wouldn't be experiencing this if you prayed more or trusted God or, you know, or there's legalism. You know, you just need to follow the rules <laughs> <laughs> or what is common in and outside of the church is advice giving. And, and that is really a reflection of the discomfort we have when someone approaches us with a very vexing problem and we don't know the answer, but we think we have to say something. And so we tell them what to do. <laughs> and, and what we really need to do is be present and listen. But if we haven't done any work with ourselves, we're afraid of that vulnerability that someone else is struggling with. Um, and so, and then, especially in evangelical spaces, there is this, you know, heady religion. And so there's this reliance on if you believe the right things, you won't be anxious. And I talk in my book about an example of a pastor who was so excited because his wife had been anxious and he walked her through the process of challenging all of her distorted beliefs and her anxiety eased. And and I thought, I'll bet it didn't ease for long, <laughs> you know, because that doesn't, it doesn't help. When we come at emotional pain with intellectual statements, what we're really saying is your pain is not valid. And I do want to kind of restate what you already said that I think the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of pastors, church leaders are well-intentioned. They're not trying to heap more hurt on people. They're right. just digging up what they have. They have, they do have a certain knowledge base based on their education, their experience. And that's what they're trying to draw from. Unfortunately, I think they just get put in really horrible situations. And as you mentioned, they feel like they have to say something because people are coming to them for advice or whatever. And then what happens is whatever trauma or whatever hurt that they're experiencing, then there's all of a sudden this kind of what I would call spiritual abuse put on top of that. That's right. And there's definitely a Granted, science is still, you know, coming along on a lot of these things. And even in the last couple of decades, we've learned so much about mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of uh, pastors that I've experienced didn't have a good knowledge base of mental illness. And that anxiety is much more than just something you're going through. It's something that's pretty deep seated and see something that you have to really have the knowledge and education base to speak into, because it's not something that you can just get rid of. It's often right. something that people have to live with. But if you feel like it's because you're not holy enough or not spiritual enough, I mean, just get in line with the 
you know, thousands of years that that kind of tactic has been used on people, which is, which is pretty sad. And your book is Restoring Relationship, Transforming Fear into Love Through Connection. Yeah, well, I mentioned the eight C words earlier of this model and as these resources we possess, and connection is one of those. And so the idea is that this is this is how God created us, that we are wired to connect. We desperately need connection. There's there's wonderful research that that shows how debilitating isolation is. And that, of course, is one of the things we've seen through the pandemic. So again, it's this idea that we have the resources, but they get constrained. And the reason they get constrained is that we have early experiences often in our life that essentially the meaning we make of them is that connection's unsafe, that there was something that happened in a a relationship whether with a parent, somebody influential usually, could be a teacher or coach, parent. Sometimes it's bad enough that one incident can really hijack the system. Other times it's multiple smaller incidents. Our system makes the meaning that there's something about connection that's not safe. And so we're wired to adapt. And again, as you point out, we're learning more and more about this, the neuroscience of you know, it's called interpersonal neurobiology, <laughs> the neuroscience of connection. But this, our system adapts. If it's unsafe, if connection's unsafe, then I am going to protect myself. And one really common adaptation is to disconnect, to distance ourselves, to shut down, to turtle, to make sure that I don't move toward another person. Yeah. I'm, I a, I'm an expert at that, Molly. I'm, I'm one of the best. <laughs> I'm one of the absolute best. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the, you know, the, the model that I use in my work, I just facilitate someone's ability to explore their story. Our, our brains take in these early experiences and make meaning of them that really inform subsequent experiences. And it's those subsequent experiences like Every time they happen, it puts more weight in the system that says, again, this definitely isn't safe, (laughs) you know, more proof. Um, And so we double down on protecting ourselves. Yes. And one thing that I've realized, honestly, just through journaling and whatnot, and I'd like to hear your perspective on this, that for a while I started looking around feeling like I I didn't feel like I had safe, a lot of safe spaces in my life. Uh But I think the reality is, is we can also create our own safe spaces. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And that's that's part of the beauty of this approach to healing is it's not therapist dependent. It's not um, dependent, say, on a spouse or partner um, or parent, you know, who wouldn't love their parent to become the perfect parent they needed. Well, that's not happening. (laughs) So, you know, this essentially helps people develop relationships with all these different parts of themselves and recognizing that we can do that, we can listen to our own stories. And, you know, yes, we need to be taught how to do that. But once we understand how to do it, we can do it ourselves, and we can have that safe experience. And the more we do that, then it opens us up for the experiences with other people. For anybody who's listening to this podcast thinking, 
I am scared to death to read a book from a, a highly educated therapist because I'm not going to understand it. There's so many great stories in the book. And that's what I loved about the book is that you teach and you kind of educate in the book through sharing stories. And to me, as kind of a storyteller and a lover of stories, it was so good. I was excited to read the book no matter what, but then to have all those stories in there, it was just lovely and, and, and perfect. All right. Dig oh. into a little bit for somebody who'd never heard of IFS. Just share a little bit about what makes that model of therapy maybe different than what a lot of us think of when we think about um, therapists and counseling and what have you. There are so many different models of therapy. So people, you know, in your audience will have had, if they've seen a therapist, probably a hundred different, you know, approaches. Right, right. But I came to this um, because this is an approach that isn't about putting a Band-Aid on a problem. So that's one thing. Um, my interest is helping people heal those deeper wounds. And I was trained in other ways to do that. And when I came to IFS, I had the, the kind of reaction you did, which is, this makes so much sense. This is what I see. This makes sense in my own life. And uh, so I appreciate the fact it's, it's kind of simple but profound. Um, so it's very accessible and it's an approach that helps us shift our attention inside in a safe way, because that's a bit of a, a catch 22 sometimes because paying attention to what's going on inside when inside is chaotic or there's a lot of fear or anxiety or, or very painful emotions happening can feel very paradoxical. Like, how can that be healing? Like, I want to get away from this stuff. I don't want to pay attention right. to it. But again, with, with the safe space that a trained therapist can um, provide, that learning how to do that, it's so beautiful because when we pay attention to what's going on inside, I often use the analogy of a parent paying attention to a distressed toddler. When the parent says, hey, I'm here, I'm, you know, tell me more, they begin to calm if you ignore what's going on, it just gets louder. And so this analogy of it being a bunch of family members, the founder was a family systems therapist. So he'd worked with families and he started realizing, well, we actually have a family inside us. <laughs> and we essentially have two different kinds of family members in there. We have protectors who are working hard to keep us from feeling any kind of pain no matter what that pain is. And then we have parts of us who are holding the burden of adverse experiences. Those might rise to the level of severe trauma, but if you're human, you've experienced adversity. And that's why I like that word, because adversity can be moving a lot as a child. It can be financial setbacks, it, you know, obviously poverty, racism, any kind of discrimination. I mean, there's no, there's no lack of burdens that we, we take on. And, and those burdens are, you know, painful beliefs we hold about ourselves and painful emotions. And this is a really safe way to interact with that and release it so that there truly is the possibility of healing and transformation. I mean, that's my passion. I also get impatient in churches and, you know, whether it's worship music or sermons, there's all this exhortation, precious little about transformation. One of the things that I think is overlooked is many of us have been through pretty severe and in, in a lot of cases, church hurt. And even yeah. what I would go so far as saying is church trauma. I was having this 
<laughs> forgive me if this is a little crude, but I was having a conversation with my 18 year old daughter and we were just talking about some difficult things that have gone on in our lives. And she said, dad, here's the thing. If a baby drowns in three inches of water or a hundred feet of water, the baby still dies. She said, trauma is trauma. And I think (laughs) I know. And at first I was like, I hate that because the baby dies. And then I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, but I think that's, I think it's true. And so a lot of us moving away from church or having gone through what's often described as church hurt, we're walking away. and, And because that was done in the context of a quote unquote, loving community, we're scared maybe to actually call it trauma. And then because we don't call it trauma, I think people often move away and don't get the help that they actually need. And and very few people that I've talked to have gone to see a therapist to work through some of the hurt that they've gone through in faith communities. And I really want to be a bit of an advocate that that is such a healthy and important thing, because I know in my life, when I was, you know, stepping away from the evangelical church, I got really I got pretty ornery and angsty and I didn't like that about myself. And, um, and I wish that a lot earlier in the game, I would have gotten the help that I really needed from a experienced therapist to help me through what truly was at least some form of trauma, certainly adversity, and it could have been very helpful. So it's, I just love having your voice on this show to just say, get the help that you need. It's worth it and invest in yourself. I know people always say, well, when I went to see my pastor, I didn't have to pay yeah, right. but this is a educated professional and we have to invest in ourselves to get our, there's no better thing to invest in than our own health and our own mental health. I want to highlight one of the things that you described, Matt, because what happens, so this hurt happens, there's a conflict inside us. A lot of times these parts of us are in what we call a polarity. You think of a tug of war. So there's, you know, the recognition that there's hurt. There's a very common protective strategy is to minimize. Mm. If you start listening, (laughs) you will hear people minimize everything. Uh, I'm also, I think, Molly, I think I'm maybe the best at that as well. So I'm really good at it. It's really common. (laughs) I'm so good at it. It puts a, you know, puts some layers of protection between that pain and our kind of day-to-day life. Yeah. And I think, again, we're trying as like good human beings, we're trying to give people the benefit of the doubt that pastor didn't mean to hurt me. That may or may not be true, but it happened and it hurt and it created some internal issues in our lives. Yeah. And that's the conflict. Many, many people, maybe everybody has when they're doing some deeper work because they will inevitably encounter their relationship with their parents. And there's often this again, a polarization between maybe a part of the system that says, you know, that was really awful and maybe holds a lot of anger, let's say. And another part that says, yeah, but, 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 you know, and, and it both are true. Yes. Most of the time that parent was just doing the best they could, but it might not have been good enough for that child. And it's, it's not only okay, but essential to do the healing because their relationship with their parent, if the parent is still alive, and even if they're not, you know, energetically, you know, they can still have healing. And that's not to put down any parents, right? Molly, you and I are both parents. Most of the listeners of this are probably parents. We all are well aware that we're not perfect parents. That's right. I'm well aware that my children should go see counseling for the (laughs) gaps in my parenting. I I really have no problem with that. So we shouldn't, 
we shouldn't have a problem admitting that our parents were imperfect, just like we're imperfect. And just like our kids, if they become parents, will be imperfect. And that's also the case with our pastors, with our church leaders. These are, we're not dealing with perfect people. Imperfect people are going to create hurt in this world. We're also going to create great streams of love as well, but both will be present. And so it's not that we're trying to villainize our parents or our pastors or the, you know, evangelicals as a whole, you know, we're just being honest, I think, which is important. That's right. I, and I really believe honesty involves vulnerability. <laughs> That's why we work so hard to avoid it. And, and one of the things I, I write about is, you know, why are humans so vulnerable? Because I really believe as we have more understanding of sort of those basics of the, of the way the brain develops and things like that, it opens space for compassion. And we, you know, compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. Because so often, you know, again, parts of us will say, well, it doesn't make any sense that that person is struggling so much. But we don't know their story and how their particular experiences landed for them because of their temperament, their broader context of their family culture, the broader culture. I mean, it's complex. And so when we can just have the compassion to know, well, that's where they are. That is how it landed for them. And I can come alongside them and validate that. And I can listen with curiosity. And that is actually what they need the most. Okay. Somebody's struggling hypothetically, not hypothetically, because we all are like me, maybe had never seen a counselor scared to death of the idea of being in a room with a counselor, but definitely are struggling, whether it's anxiety, depression, hurt from church, hurt from relationships. What would your encouragement be to help somebody to just take that first step of getting in a room with a therapist or a counselor, somebody that's trained to actually help in these areas? Well, it can help to ask friends or family for the name of someone they know so that it's sort of that warm connection already. More and more pastors recognize that they don't have this skill and they will have people they can refer people to, or again, friends or family, so that they have one less barrier to saying, well, somebody I know trusts this person. And then I would say, really understand that you are the customer. This is a person who's there to to meet your needs. And if there is anything about the interaction with that person that doesn't sit right with you, find another one. Like any other professional we hire for anything in life, medical, dental, you know, whatever, we're the customer. And so their, you know, their approach needs to meet us where we are and, and create safety. All right. Somebody's thinking about picking up restoring relationship. What would your hope be for a reader of your book? My hope is they'll have a new way of understanding themselves. That truly is a path to loving ourselves, which I believe is the only way we're going to be able to love others and love God. You know, I think of living out the great commandment and this lost element, which gets little attention, which is loving ourselves. And, and just ha- having a p- practices, I, I have exercises in the book and practices for being able to turn our attention inside and become familiar what's, with what's going on. And it really opens our heart. As a therapist, as a person that's very in tune to healing and overcoming hurt and those kinds of things, we are living in this world, Molly, that is 
just feels like a nightmare. There's mm-hmm. so much going on. There's so much division. There's, I mean, every time you look, I mean, I purposely don't watch the news hardly at all because it's just so, so bad so often. And we're seeing so much interpersonal damage happening because of things that are going on in our world. I mean, whether it's because of the pandemic or because of politics, there's families that are getting ripped apart, which is just beyond my comprehension. So in a world that seems at least externally hopeless, where do you, as somebody who, I mean, you, you deal hope for a living in so many ways, right? Where do you see hope in our world and where do you, where can we dig into hope a little bit better? You know, there's so many people who are, in spite of, of what might make one want to give up, are still doing the hard work. Um, I was able to contribute a chapter about this model um, to a book called How to Heal Our Divides. And it's, you know, there are 30 chapters in this book, essays of different organizations working, um, whether it's politics or religious or socioeconomic, racial, et cetera, divides in working to make a difference. And so there's so many, there's still so many grassroots um, organizations active that we don't hear about because that doesn't, you know, that doesn't keep people tuned into the nightly news. Um, so that gives me hope. And very specifically, you know, because of the work I've done um, both personally and with others using this approach, I really, I mean, I've seen the power of as we heal, we have more resources to bring to this and we can look at this person on the other side of whatever divide it is and recognize that if we're seeing something that we know is not loving, ultimately, you know, if you use that yardstick, that that isn't the essence of who they are, that that is, say, often what we're seeing is one of these protectors I've talked about. And, and so it's not to say that we just let that, the behavior of that part of the other person do whatever it will, but we can keep an eye on their humanity. If we demonize the other, we're never going to heal these divides. Special thanks to Molly LaCroix for joining the show today. If you would like to learn more about or to connect with Molly, simply go to her website at www.mollylacroix.com. Also be sure to order her book, Restoring Relationship, Transforming Fear into Love Through Connection. You can order it directly from her website. And of course, there's a direct link in the show notes for this episode. As always, the best way to support this podcast is by subscribing to it, giving it a five-star rating, and writing a review.